Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Noel is not here today. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccan. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. A very, uh, would you say we're a very American show, Matt? We are American-centric. A lot of the things we cover, you know, we bring our own perspective to it. And we are Americans. We do try to branch out. We do, but our perspective is our perspective. True, true. And it's important for everyone to be aware of, in as much as is possible, uh, their own perspectives and inherent biases. But you're right. We often cover things that are related to the United States or occur in the U.S. or involve people from the U.S. Uh, In all fairness, we are always thrilled to branch out of that North American shell. You know, I quite enjoyed our earlier episode on uh, Indonesian cryptids, mm-hmm. right? Which ended up being a little more true crime than I think either of us reckoned. Had, had some Australian cryptids in there. Had some Australian cryptids in there. Did we ever do the bunyip? We did. We did. We did. Okay. And we had, I think we had Annie Reese on. Correct. With the dream time. From Stuff Mom Never Told You and Savor. Excellent shows. Check them out. Speaking of fantastic segues, Matt, I was thinking about this earlier. Do you realize for the better part of a century, the Soviet Union and Russia have been the stand-in boogeymen for the U.S.? We have other threats come and go, Mm -hmm. right? Other things hit the news cycle. uh, But... Pretty much since the 1940s or so, and even even before then, uh, Soviet Union, Russia were were like the main antagonists, the main recurring nemeses. Yeah, they were they were the second most organized to mobilize power. <laughs> right, right, right. And nowadays, this is back in the news. It doesn't matter what your political leanings are. You can't really read a headline without running into something about Russia. 
And when most people in these United States of ours think of Russia, we think of one man, Vladimir Putin. Rumors have swirled about this guy for decades and decades and decades, and intelligence services the world over, not just our alphabet soup, but many other alphabet soups across the planet have spent millions, if not billions, trying to learn more about him, more about his plans, more about his strategies, and ultimately, like, what's his deal? In this episode, we're exploring a bit about the man himself, his rise to power, his inner circle, along with what some believe is his actual endgame, his genuine goal on the world stage. But let's let's cut past all the uh, you know the MSNBC, Fox News, CNN stuff, and let's let's get to know this guy. Who is Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin? Well, if you listen to Vlad's own story, he's just a regular old guy. He was born uh, to a working class family. He was born in Leningrad in 1952. His father uh, was he was a war veteran. Quite decorated, actually. He was also a factory worker. And uh, Vladimir was an only child and he grew up in, you know, a, one of the – like a communal apartment. Not mm-hmm. a c- commune necessarily mm-hmm. but a, a communal apartment with two other families. And again, this was just kind of run of the mill. This is how you lived at that time in 1952, especially if you're um, – you know, a factory worker and a war war veteran. Right, right. The state had a tremendous influence in determining where you and your family lived. And this, as you said, was not at all unusual. A communal apartment is sort of uh, similar to – think back. Did you ever live in the dorms at Georgia State? Yeah, uh, I lived in dorms at Columbus State and it was the same kind of thing that you're about to – Right, like you have a communal kitchen maybe, uh, a restroom or two Mm -hmm. that are shared across the the unit of two to three families. But then people have their own rooms and stuff. It's not just, you know, a room with a hot plate and a toilet and nine people or something. Yes, and if you go to the Kremlin's official website that has a biography on Vladimir Putin, uh, you get this quote from Putin. Are you going to do it in a voice? No. Uh, All right. It says – I come from an ordinary family, and this is how I lived for a long time, nearly my whole life. I lived as an average, normal person, and I've always maintained that connection. So there we go. We're starting out just normal. He's using the word normal, average, uh, yeah, ordinary. Sure, sure, run of the mill. Three squares, real meat and potatoes, right? Three square meals a day, I mean. That's that's very common in any political – uh, political website, you know what I mean. Someone will say, unless they're unless they're an out and out loony bin strong strongman dictator who believes they have a mandate from God, they'll say something like, you know, I'm of the people. Yeah. I'm I too am one of you. Unless it was like the DPRK writing it, perhaps. I think it would look a little different. It would. It would. <laughs> and one day maybe we can just make a segment of uh, Dear Leader Facts of yeah. their various achievements. Growing up, Putin loved spy novels and TV shows. There's an interesting quote from him in a BBC article about the appeal he saw in these stories. Oh, yeah. It's a concept that maybe a lot of us have or could identify with if you when you listen to this. The quote is, one man's effort could achieve what whole armies could not. One spy could decide the fate of thousands of people. We've brought this concept up before. It's a facet of what's now called asymmetrical warfare. Like, Why would you, why would you need to build uh, your own aircraft carrier when you could, for much less money and time, build a missile that would destroy an aircraft carrier. Yeah, or a spy that could infiltrate that aircraft carrier and sabotage it. Or a computer programmer network that could change the course of an election. There you go. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, God. But you know what I mean? You got to work smart. (laughs) You do, yes. Instead of working hard. When Putin was still in school, he went to the KGB Security and Intelligence Agency and asked how he could join up. I don't want to just read these spy novels, he thought. I want to, I want to live them. Yeah. The 
the people at the headquarters said, all right, kid, you got moxie. You know, mm-hmm. they probably like chucked his, chucked his chin a little bit. And they said, we'll tell you what, go to the Army first or – Go to college and get a law degree and then come back and maybe we can talk. And, and he so, was like, yup. Yep, he did. So he that's exactly what he did. He took the latter option and he went to Leningrad State University. He spent 17 years there as a mid-level agent working in foreign intelligence. During this time, he had an experience that many of his biographers and uh, people who – study his life, for lack of a better word, they concluded this was a defining moment in his life. Yeah, he was in Dresden, Germany. The date was December 5th, 1989. And this is just a, just a couple of weeks after the fall of the Berlin Wall between Ooh. East Germany and West Germany. Which I have a piece of, by the way. Did I ever tell you no. that? No. It was this souvenir thing that people were selling at the time. Wow. That's awesome. It's a weird one. Was it, was it in your apartment? Uh, I mean your dwelling place, wherever that could be, because <laughs> I missed it. And next time, <laughs> I'm going to check it out. Um, so, <laughs> that's really cool. Um, so we're in we're in Dresden, Germany. Mm-hmm. And Dresden, you just may remember from us talking about this before, was bombed terribly in World War II, uh, just obliterated. It was, I believe it was the firebomb campaign of, of Dresden. Uh, read about it if you want to. It's a whole other piece of history that's worth looking into. But he's in this historical city and there is a Stasi, uh, I guess, uh, the German intelligence police. They've got an installation very close, just across the street from where the KGB also has their headquarters there in Dresden. And I guess uh, I guess he found himself. Putin found himself within that KGB office, mm-hmm. and there was an anti-communist mob that was forming at the Stasi location—a huge mob of people. Mm-hmm. And then, a, you know, a, a group of them broke off and went over to the KGB offices. And uh, Putin recounted that, you know, as as he's seeing this occurring, he's like, "Oh God, what do we what are we going to do? Are we going to have a firefight right now?" Um, he was told that the KGB couldn't officially do anything to respond to this threat of violence against them without direct orders from Moscow. And quote, Moscow is silent. And this stuck with Putin in some of his public statements. Later, he said, this business of Moscow is silent. I got the feeling that the country no longer existed, that it had disappeared. It was clear that the union was ailing and that it had a terminal disease without a cure, a paralysis of power. Wow. And and this makes sense because think about – again, I'm – I want to be very fair here. Uh, This is something that happens to many organizations. You feel paralyzed because you are waiting for a green light or approval uh, on something. You know what I mean? And that's that's also necessary because at this point it could have made an international incident or triggered a hot war. But still, he's like, why do we have to sit here with our hands in our pockets while – something may well turn into a riot. And he's in his 30s at this time. And Mm -hmm. you can really feel from that quote that it was, like you said, the biographers do point to it as being like Mm -hmm. one of the moments. And this is is around the time, his KGB years are around the time you can see that famous photograph of him as a photographer, posing as a photographer uh, in the same shot with the U.S. So – Fast forward, by 1991, Putin has resigned from the KGB's active reserve. He's back in Leningrad where he grew up, but now it's called St. Petersburg. And he's working for the city's first democratically elected mayor, a guy named Anatoly Sobchak, who happens to be his former law professor. He was a he was behind the scenes. He was a fixer. Uh, you remember House of Cards. Yes. So for much of House of Cards, uh, Underwood, the Underwood family has a fixer, right? I can't remember the guy's name. Who ended up becoming chief of staff. Who ended up becoming chief of staff. That was his spoil, uh, his spoils of war, his blood and treasure. He earned that by doing very illegal things. Yes. So the implication here is that maybe Putin was uh, cutting some legal corners for the mayor. He was called the man to see if things needed to get 
done. And he, yeah, and he was indispensable to the mayor. He was also very loyal to the mayor. Yes, when Sobchak wasn't uh, reelected, um, the guy who won, the guy who's who, the guy who won is like, you know, I heard about this uh, Putin, the fixer fellow. I'd get him on my staff, so he's offered a job by the the man who won. And uh, Putin turned it down and he said, quote, it's better to be hanged for loyalty than be rewarded for betrayal. Which I don't care how you feel about the guy. Shoot. That's hardcore, right? So 1996, he and his family pull up their tent stakes. They move to Moscow and he climbs up the government ladder. He eventually becomes the head of the agency that replaced the KGB, which is the FSB. And should, it should be familiar to a lot of us who've been listening to this mm-hmm. show for a while. And in 1998, he's head of the FSB and Boris Yeltsin, who was the president of Russia at the time, has named him, personally named Putin to this position. Newsweek was speculating a lot about this. Who is this guy? You know what I mean? He yeah. was he was on intelligence network radar for a while, but he wasn't in a lot of mainstream news. They had bigger fish to fry. So Newsweek said this was a job the president would only have given to one of their most trusted of aides. Then in August of 1999, Boris Yeltsin appoints Putin prime minister of Russia. And if you go to the official uh, the official website of the Kremlin, you can read about the interaction of just walking into Boris Yeltsin's office mm-hmm. and having him basically just tell him, you're the one. You're, I'm the one. You're the one for this job. Uh, it was fascinating. This was also a time of chaos in the administration. Exactly. But it's one of those things that's difficult to turn down, Right. Right, and it doesn't compromise his loyalty or his concerns about that. But it's also it's also a situation wherein Yeltsin and his administration need a lot of help. Putin, you see, is the fifth prime minister in less than two years. They're just running through him, and this chaos continues to escalate. In 1999, New Year's Eve, suddenly, Boris Yeltsin steps down from office and he says – Vladimir Putin is the acting president and he is the acting president until March when he wins the election and becomes the real president. A lot of people – there's some murky stuff here because a lot of people think that this was a move Yeltsin was doing as a – an attempt at self-preservation because there was already a war in Chechnya, which will be important later. And uh, his approval ratings were dropping as the war was getting more and more desperate and less and less successful. So now we have we have gotten to the point where Putin is finally president of Russia. What does he do next? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? 
look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. You know, just before we get into this again, Ben, I just want to point out, it, th- I think people are right to say there's something odd going there, going on there with the whole Yeltsin appointment of Putin to him becoming president within four months. Mm-hmm. That's It feels like that was a calculated move somewhere. And I guess it, it would be difficult unless you had the official... I don't know, diaries of everyone involved, but still it feels like there's there's a little something extra occurring there. I also want to point out Boris Yeltsin was – it was not a secret. It wasn't often written about a bunch of headlines and stuff, but Boris Yeltsin was a notoriously wild alcoholic. There's a great story. I know it's a little bit of a tangent. We may not have time, but it's, it's so worth it. There's one time Boris Yeltsin meets then-President Bill Clinton in Washington in September of 1994. Secret Service agents found Yeltsin alone on Pennsylvania Avenue, dead drunk, in his underwear, yelling for a taxi and, you know, (laughs) slurring his words. They were trying to get him inside, you know, to Blair House where he was staying. And he was like, no, get your hands off me. I'm president. I want a pizza. Seriously. Wow. He was hailing a taxi to get a pizza. Maybe maybe he had just finished shooting his (laughs) P-tape. Someone asked, uh, nobody really knew about this until 2009. You can see how they don't want that getting out. Uh, When a guy named Taylor Branch published a book called The Clinton Tapes where he interviewed the former president and then he asked Bill Clinton how the situation ended and the guy just shrugged and said, "Um, well, yeah, I mean, he got his pizza. (laughs) Last last thing, the next night, he tried to do it again. No way. Yes way, Ted. (laughs) He was having a laugh. That's all it was. (laughs) He seemed very, very centered on that. But the – but we say all that to say that this uh, – on multiple levels, this presidency was in trouble and as soon as Putin becomes president, right, in in 1999, he's acting president. He's the legit president in March after the election. He does one of those famous first presidential moves. He pardons the guy before him, giving him immunity from any investigations, including protecting his papers, his residence, and his other material possessions. That also means protecting his bank account. Wow. There you go. You pardoned. <laughs> right. Thanks for the office. You pardoned. <laughs> and he had two big problems. First off, he's already a man with a plan. He has a big goal, but it's on the horizon, right? That's what we're talking about in this episode. So he has two immediate problems stymieing his progress. The first is that Yeltsin had a ton of oligarchs. An oligarch is a member of a very small elite that controls a disproportionate amount of industry, Mm. finance, or resources. Ben Yeltsin deals with all of them because of the privatization of the former USSR. And Putin says, all right, these guys might – they might be bigger than me one day. You know what I mean? So let me get in front of it as one of our old bosses is so fond of saying. And in July of 2000, he told the oligarchs, look – I'm not going to mess with your business. I'm not going to take all of the uh, all of the businesses that you stole from the Russian people. 
I'm going to let you do that. Make as much money as you want and stay the hell out of my way and don't ever say anything negative about me and don't ever make me think that you're a challenge. And they said, okay. <laughs> they, totally, <laughs> they were like, dope. Yeah, well, uh, for the most part, right? Um, yeah, wow. Let's let's keep going down a few other things that occurred to him uh, before the we get to the modern big, day. Yeah, the second big problem, right? Yes, the, the second massive problem, the Chechen hostage crisis. And this occurred in 2002. And this is when there's a theater in Moscow that was seized by Chechen militants. There were 40 of them. And they were led by the warlord Mozvar Barayev. And uh, this was a th- like over the course of three days this took place. And there were 912 hostages uh, that were there, like that were being – that were taken hostage at this theater and 129 of them were killed mm. or died at least in some way. And this was really, really a big moment for Putin and a lot of people thought that his domestic approval was just going to – you know, sink because this is it happened on his watch essentially, and that's really all that has to occur for a leader to be criticized and then have their reputation uh, taken away. Even if you know, possibly he couldn't have done anything about it directly, besides different strategies for going in and to resolve the hostage situation. But let's we have a quote here that's just talking about his his ruthless handling of the siege and his refusal to negotiate with the hostage takers further shored up his reputation as a man of action. And um, his approval rating went up. It shot up actually 83% after everything was over. So, you know, he he went into a situation that a lot of his detractors thought, oh, this is going to go terribly for him. And he turned it around completely just by being uh, what a lot of people would consider to be just strong in that moment, right? Yeah, here's what they did. They had they had a they surrounded the place for two days, and then they raided the place on the morning of October 26 after they had pumped a narcotic gas in the building, knocking out the terrorists and the hostages alike. They broke through the walls and the roof. They went through the sewage tunnels all at once, and they just started wiping people out. Jeez, it's. Nothing to mess with. And this this would have, you know, if this would have been handled, say, uh, if this had been uh, something that happened in the U.S., for instance, that kind of approach would be political suicide. Yeah, it'd be over. Yeah. I mean, it'd be like a, that's like a Waco situation, but mm. much worse. Yeah. But this time they were like, yeah, this guy gets things done. There you go. He, he even got reelected in he 2004, did. right? He did. Yeah, he had a second term. Uh, and he, he really just focused inward on domestic affairs, but he did draw a lot of cr- criticism for cracking down on the voice, the like uh, the media, mm-hmm. on people who are reporting things that are occurring. You know that that he's handling domestically, right? So I'm handling everything over here domestically, but I don't want uh, I don't want you to talk about it necessarily. Or talk about the way I do. You know, we can be friends. As long as you are not a challenge. Yeah, that's don't don't make me don't like you are making don't me. Don't do make this. me hit you. <laughs> yeah, why? Why do you want me to have to do these things to you, media? Jeez. And also, uh he was he was tremendously popular because of the perceived economic um economic improvements in Russia. The GDP increased by seventy percent, investments increased by over hundred and twenty percent. The country largely relied on oil and it was good to be in the oil business at that time. He steps back because there is rule of law, right? And in 2008, he has a guy named Dmitry Medvedev uh, who is elected president and Dmitry later makes Putin the new prime minister a day later. There's little debate that Putin more or less handpicked Medvedev as his stand-in and then soon enough, Putin – Came back for the presidency. He just yippee ki back <laughs> back into office. In 2012, he won his third presidential election. It's a six-year term. This was controversial because people said, uh, does the Constitution let you have a third term? And critics said, this is a fraudulent election. But officially, if you believe the official numbers, he got around 64 percent of the vote or more than 60, which is which is huge. Because he said, 
look, vote for me, or you know, and do, you won't make me do the things that I have to do to you. Right. What was it? What was your <laughs> as soon as you as if you don't vote for me, you're a problem. Don't, you're an obstacle. Don't make me think of you as a challenge. <laughs> yeah, it's that's that's the intensity, right? Uh, so. We'll fast forward through some of this stuff uh, so we can get to the really crazy yeah. part. In March of 2014, he gets on the world stage again. He annexes Crimea. You and I were working on this show when that happened, and we were we were going back and forth figuring out what, what the move was here, but ultimately there were little international consequences. And now – on a side note, no one knows how much Putin is actually worth. In March of this year, Congress uh, started saying – the US Congress started saying, we should investigate this. Is this guy a modern Mansa Musa? Oh, wow. Who, who was you know, genuine, generally acknowledged to be the wealthiest man of all time. Check out the drunk history on Mansa Musa. <laughs> yeah, I will. He's uh, – Putin may actually be the wealthiest single man in the world. No one knows. But speculation says that he may control more money than Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos combined. So if that's true, that's astonishing. But it could also – you know, it could be propaganda. And it's tough to tell who the author of that propaganda might be. But during his rise to power and here in the modern day in 2019 as we record this, he stands accused and his administration stands accused of numerous crimes, including but not limited to illegal expansionism, annexations, and support of coups, <coughs> Crimea and others, financial corruption, economic warfare, election interference. Sorry, folks. You knew that one was coming. And, of course, murdering people. I mean, just look at the assassination list. Is this a path to power paved with murder? There is no question that multiple journalists, former employees of the government, and dissidents alike have met untimely ends during Vladimir Putin's time at the helm of the Russian government. We have some quick examples. Some may be familiar to you. Some may not. Uh, Let's start the first one, big power move. Uh, Alexander Litvinenko, uh, KGB agent, former KGB agent, he drank a cup of tea at a London hotel and it had been laced with a poison. He died three weeks later. The poison was something called polonium-210 and people in the U.S. heard about this. It was a huge stink because it was so blatant that it seemed as if uh, members of the Russian intelligence agency wanted to leave a fingerprint of some sort. Or someone wanted us to believe that it was them. That's what I always imagine. Right, When right. it's that blatant. Right. Was it, was it a, uh, a frame, a stitch-up job, right? Mm-hmm. So we do know that the Brits found that not only was Litvinko poisoned, but that he was poisoned by FSB agents. And they said these orders probably came from their boss and probably from President Putin. And then we have a journalist, Anna Politkovskaya. Yes, this is a Russian journalist. Uh, was highly critical of Putin and just his political moves and everything. And she wrote a book called Putin's Russia. And she accused him of turning his country into ostensibly a police state. And she was murdered by contract killers who shot her at point blank range. Uh, and it was like right outside where she lived, where she got shot uh, in the elevator, the lift, I guess. And Five men were convicted eventually of her murder, but the judge found that it was a contract killing. It was definitely a contract killing. They got paid $150,000 by some unknown person. A person unknown. So again, this doesn't mean that Putin personally ordered all these things, but they occurred during his time. There's another journalist, Natalia Estemirova, who worked with the Anna Politkovskaya that we just mentioned, uh, she uncovered human rights abuses carried out by Russian state forces in Chechnya and she was abducted from her home and found in the woods nearby with gunshot wounds to her head. No one's ever been convicted of her murder. There was an oligarch, Boris Berezovsky, who fled to the UK after he and Putin got on bad terms. Again, we can do business. Don't. Don't make me think you're a challenge. Uh, that's it. I'm going to Britain. <laughs> he said, all right, I'm going to Britain. And then during his time in Britain, 
in the UK, he threatened to bring down Vladimir Putin by force. That's when he was found dead shortly after in his Berkshire home, March of 2013, in what was called a suicide. He was found dead inside of a locked bathroom with a ligature around his neck. The coroner could not explain how he died. The British police had earlier on several occasions investigated several alleged assassination attempts against him. But this was a, you know, suicide. And that's just a couple of the examples here. Uh, But they really do show how all these people, the oligarchs he's working with, journalists who are covering what's happening, even ex-KGB intelligence agents all end up dying. Hmm. But why? Yeah. Why? Uh, Is it because they incurred the wrath of the man himself? Is it because they incurred the wrath of maybe rogue agents in the government? Because we know that intelligence agencies act on their own accord all the time and the left hand doesn't always know what the right is doing. But these people did die after they ticked off the Russian government. And this is all this is all pretty grisly stuff, right? But unfortunately, it is not uncommon in the halls of power. Some of the more cynical among us listening today may even argue that, hey, this is what it takes to stay in power when you're running a more unstable country. If anything, this only proves that the Russian government, like many, many other countries, is involved in shady stuff. But To what end? This is where we run into a plot twist because you see, folks, unlike American governments or specifically unlike the U.S. government, which often shifts its policies every four to eight years depending on who owns and pays the current administration. It's rarely the voters. Spoiler alert. Ha ha. The Russian government has had consistent leadership for around 20 years now. That gives you access to more long-term planning, and some experts believe there's more than the dirty business of geopolitics at play here. Instead, they say there may be a long-term plan. The long game. Ooh, we've talked about that before. The great game. The great game. And we'll talk about it after a quick word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission 
parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Here's where it gets crazy. Questions, questions, questions. Who's got questions? Well, one of the million dollar, billion dollar, trillion dollar questions is what is Russia actually up to? Some experts believe they have found the answers in the works of a controversial, enigmatic, and relatively obscure uh, philosopher, pundit, professor, politician, a guy named Alexander Dugin, who his enemies will call the modern Rasputin, or even once the Alex Jones of Russia. That was a quote I read as well. How can you be both of those? I don't know. It seems like they're very different people. (laughs) So Alexander Dugin, who is he? Who is he? He's born in Moscow, January 7th, 1962, about 10 years older than Putin. Uh, His parents were... Uh, oh, a colonel general in the Soviet military intelligence and a candidate of law. Uh, this guy, Dugan, and his wife, uh, Galina, she was a doctor in candidate of medicine. So any of this dude, he's a polyglot. He, that would ten speak, languages. Yeah, ten languages at least. Uh, uh, he's a professor, a fascist. He's a celebrated philosopher in his home country. And he is, for a lot of people, at least a lot of Russians, he's at the forefront of geopolitical thought. He is... He has one of those minds that can see the entire chessboard. Yeah, and he understands. Yeah, it. that's a good way to put it, Matt. He he's he's the he's like the third base coach saying, "This is how you make the move. This is how you see through the BS and get to home plate." He is a prolific writer, and in his 1997 article, "Fascism: Borderless and Red," he proclaimed the arrival of a genuine, true, radically revolutionary and consistent fascist fascism in Russia. So not just your garden variety fascism. Uh, He believed that it was – again, these are quotes and they may be offensive. Uh, He believed that it was by no means the racist and chauvinistic aspects of national socialism that determined the nature of its ideology. Instead, he says – and this is a weird phrase. He says, the excesses of this ideology in Germany are a matter exclusively of the Germans, while Russian fascism is a combination of natural national conservatism with a passionate desire for true change. And then he starts shouting out various Nazi organizations. Yeah. The Waffen-SS, especially the scientific sector of this organization, the Annenerbe, what? What (laughs) was an intellectual oasis, the framework of the national socialist regime? That's crazy. So he conveniently, um, he he conveniently doesn't hit upon the massive genocide that occurred in World War II. But he's talking about these uh, kind of odd organizations that ended up uh, leading the charge in a lot of ways, a lot of intellectual ways. In his early days, uh, in his earlier works too, he had a lot of tendency to resort to occult symbolism. Just to mention that part. But, But he also, in 1997, wrote a book, the title of which translates to The Foundation of Geopolitics in English. We've mentioned this book before and uh, we had a we had someone write in and say, "Hey, do you have an English translation of this?" I believe they said because I speak Russian, I couldn't find an English translation for my friends. There was one poor English translation of this book that was available on Amazon for a long time. There was no official translation. There's no name translator. I strongly suspect that a computer translated this stuff. Mm. So. What we do know about this book is pretty fascinating. I mean, I I read that computer-translated version, and I was like, man, this guy's all over the place. But I think it's just because you still need a human translator, right? So what we know is disturbing and fascinating because it appears to predict not all, but many of the actions taken by Putin, his inner circle, and the Russian government, especially in recent years. He credits a guy named General Nikolai Klokotov of the Academy of the General Staff as his co-author and main inspiration. Klokotov denies this. And then another guy, Colonel General Leonid Ivashov, uh, who's head of the Russian Ministry of Defense, helped draft the book. But 
Although Klokotov says he didn't help write it, he's still a huge fan. He said that in the future, the book should serve as a mighty ideological foundation for preparing a new military command. Just like Atlas Shrugged. Wow. <laughs> just like. Just so. <laughs> um, and Dugan even notes that the book is used as a textbook in uh, just all over Russia in multiple educational programs. So as though like – Check it out. Yeah, my stuff's a textbook. Right, right. And he is a professor, and professors yeah. write textbooks. But this is popular. This is very popular in military, uh, military education circles. Mm-hmm. So other people in the government, not all, but other people in the government say that this shouldn't just be a textbook that some people read. It should be a compulsory or mandatory book. You know, like everybody has to take – English 1101 or yeah. know, basic economics or something. It but, would be like Lord of the Flies. Right, right, right. Lit class. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So but what is this book about? Not the sexiest title, obviously, not the most provocative thing, but it hits on some provocative points. Well, the first is Atlanticism. <laughs> not Atlantis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Atlanticism is in the Atlantic, I'm mm. assuming. Uh, but it, it rejects Atlanticism in favor of Eurasianism. So, all right, let's talk about this. Atlanticism is the West, basically all of the West. We're talking the UK, the United States. Uh, who, who are the other big players in the West? Uh, Western Europe in general. So that'd yeah. be like Germany, France, Spain. Yeah, and he's saying let's we're we're saying no to that Eurasianism or continentalism is the the new thing. It's land-based power uh, revolving around authorita- authoritarian uh, control, essentially an empire of racially pure regimes in which women are confined to the home and breeding. Mm-hmm. Oy. And that, that part, hitting on that part comes from critics of this, obviously. Okay. Uh, but yes, the idea is that Atlanticism is represented by in all but name, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is modern, polyethnic, egalitarian, feminist, and democratic, aka American globalism. And the idea is, uh, in in his in his mind, the idea is that the emphasis on individual liberty is moving the species in the wrong direction. And he says stuff that I think many people would find quite offensive says, you know, the idea that there is no there is no community, the person, the individual is paramount. Mm. And uh, he furthermore accuses the West, the American globalist, of removing people's ability to identify as part of a group. Um, in recent years, he had said that the last the la- the last bastion, of group identification was gender and that the West was trying to remove the concept of gender. So he's taking it. I'm showing that point to illustrate how far he's taking it. And let's get to this idea of the plan. Ultimately, the plan laid out in this book, which is again a textbook often in the country, is to replace the global superpower of the U.S. with a multipolar world of regional powers, regional hegemons, with Russia controlling uh, greater Eurasia, essentially what was once the territory of the USSR. Bring it back. Uh, The book declares that the battle for the world rule of Russians never ended and that Russia remains the staging area of a new anti-bourgeoisie, anti-American revolution. I can see the red hats. They're like, make the USSR a thing again. <laughs> is that is that a real hat? No, but that's – should we make them? <laughs> oh. <laughs> we'll, put his, we'll put his name on it. I don't know. We'd have to at least send him one. Yeah. But the Eurasian Empire is, in his mind, constructed on the fundamental principle of the common enemy, rejecting this Atlanticism you mentioned, Matt, uh, strategically controlling the U.S. and the refusal to allow, quote, liberal values to dominate us. He wrote that, – that, OK, so that's the thing. This sounds a little conspiratorial, right? He's a big thinker, great ideas. What is he actually doing? It appears that he is um, back in 1997 predicting some things that are happening on the global stage today. Yeah. He wrote pretty much about 
uh, let's say something that may or could be considered to be similar to the Trump-like presidency. Wow, that was couching it really hard. But let's let's get a quote here. At the global level for the construction of a planetary new empire, the chief scapegoat will namely be the USA, the undermining of whose power, which up to the complete destruction of its geopolitical constructs, will be realized systematically and uncompromisingly by the participants of the new empire. Okay, a little over my head, Ben. So the idea here is that they want – or Dugan wants to be specific. He wants the US to retreat from its interference in global events, to become a little more isolationist and to internally become more divided. Now, to, from his perspective, it doesn't particularly matter how that is achieved. You know what I mean? If there's a, if there's a, a super, super far left – eat the rich, no material possessions president that divides the country, then that's fine too because it accomplishes the same thing, which is to divide and conquer the domestic population. And then while this is occurring, while the U.S. is becoming more mired in its own domestic affairs and increasingly isolationist, Dugan says, let's make overtures to Latin America, to South and Central America and Get it away from the control of the global north. Let's also, while we're at it, provoke every kind of destabilization and separatism within the borders of the United States that we can to make it uh, less and less capable as a global superpower and give it more and more problems at home. Well, and here's one of the major things. Mm. We've talked about this before that is similar to and why we're comparing this to Putin or why, we're, why this is important. Rather than just wielding a weapon to attack something or the might of, let's say, a naval force or something, this kind of battle, this kind of mm -hmm. play occurs as a subversion, much more than an, an, you know, an actual attack. Right, right, exactly, yeah. This is a war fought in terms of diplomacy, asymmetrically, subterfuge. This is not... Um, battalions meeting each other in a proxy country. Yeah, it's that destabilization. Mm -hmm. That's one of the main things. You're you're not you're not exploding it. You're just making the foundation so weak that it crumbles under its mm -hmm. own weight. And there's some economic warfare as well, mm -hmm. uh, using Russia's gas, oil, and natural resources to bully and pressure other countries. Like years back, uh, there was this legitimate concern and Russia did it successfully, this legitimate concern that they could turn off the natural gas faucet yeah, because they were a supplier, right, to a lot of Eastern Europe. Yep. And they did it a couple times, right? right. Uh, so these tools they're saying are more effective for these purposes uh, than military might would be. And let's let's walk through some of the goals in this book, Foundation of Geopolitics, and see whether they match up with real world events. First off, Dugan, Alexander Dugan, strongly believes that the UK should be separated from Europe. That's happening. <laughs> it really is That's happening. It. In 1997, he was like, let's break up the party. Some, the, the party needs to get broken up. Britain's got to get out of the, the European picture. Wow. And now we call it Brexit. Brexit has not happened yet, but it's – you know, it's on the precipice, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, Dugan also said, Ukraine should be annexed by Russia. Yeah, because, quote, Ukraine as a state has no geopolitical meaning, no particular cultural import or universal significance, no geographic uniqueness, no ethnic exclusiveness. Its certain territorial ambitions represents an enormous danger for all of Eurasia. And without resolving the Ukrainian problem, it is in general senseless to speak about continental politics. Wow, first of all. Uh-huh. Uh, but second of all. What what happened? What's what's what is attempting to happen in Ukraine? Crimea, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, so we got two, two for two for two so far. Mm -hmm. Two in progress in the United States. Uh, he says Russia should use its special services domestically. In special the, services. Special services. Whoosh, whoosh. It's yeah. a hard whoosh whoosh. Uh, special services to fuel instability and separatism. He says provoke. Uh, provoke racist, 
Uh, Russia should introduce geopolitical disorder into internal American activity, encouraging all kinds of separatism and ethnic, social, and racial conflicts, actively supporting all dissident movements, extremist, racist, sectarian, thus destabilizing internal political processes in the U.S. And then he says, it would also make sense if at the same time we support isolationist tendencies in American politics. Uh, that sounds familiar. It's happening. It's it's like it's, you know, at least there are, we know there are provable attempts from the Russian side to foment that kind of discord. And again, we cannot emphasize enough that this argument here is not saying let's pick a side. It's saying let's let's back up every side. And these groups, these extremist groups are generally not going to get along with one another. They have a different version of how the world and the country in which they live should be. Let's but, back every side that's on the periphery or like at an extreme, right? Essentially. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. There's no, there's no modern, no church of moderation being backed by, uh, by this guy. Right. So, like, so by this argument, and this is just speculation. I'm just making things up here. By this argument, um, militant uh, vegan terrorists are no different from neo Nazis. Yeah, even yeah. though they probably wouldn't get along. <laughs> but the the vegans are gonna, you know. Go out there and campaign to get you to stop eating meat and that's going to make you frustrated because you like meat. Or they'll blow up livestock infrastructure. And, you know, these are just examples that seem indicative of plans coming to fruition. There are things that haven't happened yet. He advises that China, the country of China, should be contained and as much as possible dismantled. Not much success on that front. No. Sorry, Alex. But uh, but there are also plans for um, – Armenia, Turkey, the Middle East, uh, North Africa, and these these plans it's still kind of hard to see. Iran is, of course, seen as an ally. The idea is to form alliances with two or three countries in different regions. But people, so it sounds crazy, right? But people are taking this seriously. Foreign Policy described this book as one of the most curious, impressive, and terrifying books to come out of Russia during the entire post-Soviet era. And it's they said it was more sober than his previous books. It's better argued. It's shorn of occult references, numerology, traditionalism, and other eccentric metaphysics, all of which he used in his previous works. Yeah. Those were a little more crazy. When we say shorn, just it was they were not in there. Right, right. He didn't he didn't say, look at these runes. <laughs> but this, I mean, but this brings us to this brings us to our conclusion. So that's the book. And if you do not speak Russian or you don't happen to have a PDF of that computer translated version, you're gonna be hard pressed to find it in Russian or, or in any other language, honestly. Um, and it's surprising because that book sold out four times in four editions and it's still not in English. Whoa. So we have to, we have to ask ourselves, if, we, if we're thinking with clear minds, how much of Russia's actions come from this playbook, this so-called playbook? Is that strategy on its own, you think, to not have an English translation that's readily available? I don't know. You know, all it takes is uh, someone who speaks Russian and English to, to sit, sit down. down and do it, though. Yeah, which is a huge undertaking yeah. to translate a book. But yeah, I wonder. According to John Dunlop, a Hoover Institution specialist on the Russian right, there has probably not been another book published in Russia during the post-communist period which has exerted a comparable influence on Russian military, police, and foreign policy elites. So people are reading this. And they're talking about it. It's the Harry Potter series of its field, right? But a lot of people in the U.S. are not aware of it. And we have to ask, like, how is this book – are people reading this book and saying, boom, that's the plan? You know what I mean? Yeah. Is Vladimir Putin reading this book and saying, all right, man, Crimea, let's do it, YOLO? Wow. I don't think he says you'll like. <laughs> Maybe. Well, we know that while he's definitely influenced military thought and may have influenced Putin to a degree, he and Vladimir Putin don't always see eye to eye. He sees Vladimir Putin as a compromise, as arguably better, but he would argue that this 
tendency should go further. He wants a super Putin. That's his phrase. Someone who is more nationalistic, less compromising with the threat of American globalism and NATO. And an uber Vlad. <laughs> yes, an uber Vlad, just so. And again, not everything described in this book has come to pass. It does appear that he has predicted several things that are occurring now. But this leads us to the question, what's, what's next? Is the Russian government, the actual Russian government and the current president, uh, are they – genuinely following a step-by-step guide outlined in a textbook or what's going on? Is Dugan just a nut job conspiracy theorist that people are maybe taking too seriously for propaganda value? Here's the one that, that bugs me. Like back to your question, Matt, that you just asked a second ago. Why isn't there an English translation? Why was that admittedly bad English translation pulled from Amazon? I know, man. Nobody wants nobody wants your opponent to have a playbook of what's going on and what you're going to do. I'm not saying that's what's happening. It is strikingly curious though. And I remember back in the day, I believe there was a – there was an interview perhaps with him that you can find where – with him and then a couple other people and they're describing the long game. Mm-hmm. And it's describing all of these things that are – that we've just outlined here, uh, roughly at least. That's a great point because we can see uh, a lot of the – if you cannot uh, speak or read Russian as yeah. uh, neither of us can, uh, you can see in a lot of his lectures the the same points. So if you can't get a hold of the book, you can always literally – like you just said, Matt, hop over to YouTube, uh, search for Dugan Foundation's geopolitics, just those three words, and you will embark upon a, uh, a very deep rabbit hole. A lot of it's the geopolitical stuff we talked about, but then he, you see other lectures where he gets progressively further out there. Yeah. Do it. Go <laughs> just turn this off and start, start watching videos. So we want to know what you think. Is this is this all propaganda? Is there sand to it? Is this guy guiding policy for a country that's perfectly capable of uh, affecting other foreign powers? Or is this, you know, just kind of exaggerated? Yeah, let us know what you think because I, I know what I think. It scares me. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> so write to us. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and on Facebook where we're Conspiracy Stuff. On Instagram, we are Conspiracy Stuff Show. Share your thoughts with us. If you don't want to do that, give us a phone call. Leave a message and it could get on the show. We are 1-833-STDWYTK. You can find our favorite part of the show, your fellow listeners, on our Facebook page. Here's where it gets crazy. And if you say, uh, you know, I've got a great idea. I've got some stuff that I think... All my fellow listeners will enjoy, but I hate social media or the social meds. I still want to contact you. Have no fear. We've got your back. You can email us directly. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking and all-day drinks for one low price but you better hurry because this bundle won't last long save now at cedarpoint.com i'm katia adler host of the global story over the last 25 years i've covered conflicts in the middle east political and economic crises in europe drug cartels in mexico now i'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it join me monday to friday to find out what's happening why and what it all means follow the global story from the bbc wherever you listen to podcasts 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now.